This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 559. And the quote of the day is, I came to the conclusion that there's an existential moment in your life when you must decide to speak for yourself. Nobody else can speak for you. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming, and beyond, and beyond, and beyond, and beyond. What's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here, episode 559, and I hope you are well. I hope you're safe, and it's uh, it's business as usual over here at Drummer's Resource. So I don't want to dwell on the negatives. I want to dwell on the positives, and the positive is that this episode is amazing. It's with one of my favorite drummers of all time, Mr. Greg Arico. If you don't know about Greg Arico. A lot of people know that he was the founding drummer in Sly and the Family Stone and played with them for years on all of those great hits. And what a lot of people don't know, though, is that after that, he joined Weather Report. He played with David Bowie. He was a producer. He produced uh, Miles Davis's wife, uh, her record, Betty Davis. The guy has stories on stories on stories. He played at Woodstock. I mean, amazing amazing drummer uh one of my favorites again like i mentioned he's also been sampled thousands of times on multiple different albums and you know all these smash hits that's his original drumming on those tracks and i'm just super excited that he is on the show we talk about a lot he has a ton of great information about sound about playing about space in your playing and all sorts of different nuggets of wisdom in there for you and big shout out to my man Stephen wolf for connecting uh mr greg Arico and me i appreciate you wolf and uh without wasting any more time i'm gonna get right into it with the one and only greg Arico. Gregorico, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Well, I must say it's good to be here, and but uh, that probably means all all much more under the current circumstances. Uh, for sure, and uh, look look forward to talking to you. I think that this uh, we're not. I don't want to go down the road of of pessimism or anything like that. But I think that this would be a lot different. Uh, the situation would be a lot different if we didn't have technology and we were all just sort of boarded up in our homes and and couldn't communicate so effortlessly so yeah that's true um that's absolutely true actually you know information moves vast fast and uh and a lot of it mm-hmm. <laughs> unfortunately sure. it, it, you you gotta <clears throat> you still have to sit through what's uh what's real what's not what's good what's bad and all that kind of stuff you know yeah 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 um so i have I have so many questions for you. Uh, it, it, it's always interesting to get, uh, it's a privilege to get to talk to someone like you where, uh, you know, my drumming has been influenced by you and the, and the work that you did with Sly and the Family Stone and mm-hmm. and trying to get down, uh, it, you know, into that stuff really deep and trying to get into the nitty gritty. But the, the question that I have for you is how how did you develop that sound you know, in the 60s. So you're looking at, if I came out with a band now that sounded like Sly and the Family Stone, everyone would just say, oh, it sounds like Sly and the Family Stone. Or mm-hmm. if I came out with a band that sounded like, you know, uh, whoever, Dave Matthews Band, they would say, oh, it just sounds like Dave Matthews Band. But mm-hmm. I always say that, you know, inventing it and creating it out of nothing is totally different than replicating it. And I and the sound that you guys created 
wasn't replicated. So what were you listening to at the time and what were you influenced by? Who were the people that, that shaped your sound, which allowed you to create the sound that you did? Well, let me give you some reference points. Uh, first of all, uh, I, I started playing when I was 14. I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. Mm-hmm. So I'm exposed to, uh, you know, it's the international intersection, so to speak, and, and people from all over the world. We had a lot of tip radio here and a lot of good live music, you know. And um, so I was exposed to that, you know, just growing up. I always... I always loved the drums. I wanted to start playing when I was a little kid, but my, my folks just, you know, didn't support it. They didn't want the noise around the house and mm-hmm. what happened. So when I was 14, I had a little side job and I was saved up some money and bought a small kit and I started playing, you know, became a little more independent. What made you want to play drums? I just, I, you know, I just, I don't know. I, I just always had, uh, I love drums. I mean, it just excited me. Right. You know, I, I remember, matter of fact, uh, that drum set I bought, I was actually, <laughs> uh, I was with my folks. We were at a wedding reception, Italian wedding reception. So, of mm-hmm. course, uh, an accordion on stage and a, and a drummer, yeah. right? So, I'm, you know, I'm sitting up, you know, next to the drummer watching him and not that it was anything unusual, you know, it's just, just, but just the sound of the drums, just to look at a set of drums. And I used to look at books, you know, and just drool over it. I go, I'd love to have a set of drums, you know, I like how they sound, I like how they look, just makes me feel good. So, um, during the, um, this is how it went down (laughs) during the, uh, the, uh, intermission, the guy seen, I was interested. He goes, Oh, go up, take a look at him, you know? All right. Mm -hmm. Don't take a look, you know, hit him a few times, just messing with him, you know. And he goes, uh, you, you really, you know, he goes, I'm, I'm selling that set, you know. I go, oh, really? And um, so the, the evening went on and he seen that was really interested. And I, I told him, you know, my folks didn't really, really want to have, they weren't interested in me having to set around the house at this time. And he goes, well, let's go talk to them. <laughs> So he comes over and, you know, they had, you know, a few glasses of champagne. They were feeling good, you know. And so he, he, he spoke to them and just says, you know, he's, he's really interested in drums here, you know, and, uh, it seems like he's got a natural thing for it. And, uh, so they're looking at each other and I'm looking at them, you know, drooling and (laughs) got them to commit. Really? Okay. My folks are old, 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 old school Italian, right? So. That word means everything. Uh-huh. Next morning, man, I woke up and I said, Dad, come on. We're going to go pick up the drum set. <laughs> sure enough, he got up and we did. Really? Yeah, awesome. it, was, it was a three-piece Ludwig set and didn't have everything. I think it, it was missing a tom, didn't have any cymbals. Mm-hmm. I think it had a hi-hat, if I remember correctly. So anyway, I saved up and just kind of added to the set and it started playing to um, had a room downstairs set up with my brother, six years older. He had a 45 RPM record changer, you know, mm-hmm. what we called singles in those days, about the size of a CD. And so all this, you know, uh, he was listening to good music and there was always good music around the house. And so I, I would, I would play, I would practice to I put 
the records on him and played to it. Different stuff I was gravitating towards. I had some Ray Charles. I had some Aretha Franklin. I had some JB. I had some uh, some um, um, Dave Brubeck. So, you know, I'm, I'm practicing this stuff in five, you know, mm-hmm. and I just, it just was a natural thing for me. And um, so I started playing with uh, locally, you know, beer joints and stuff with, with guys who were in the neighborhood. They're a little older than me, and they used to sneak me in. By the time I was 16, I had met Freddie uh, Sly's brothers, Freddie Stone, mm-hmm. and started a group. And at that time, Sly had a very popular uh, radio show. He was a DJ. Oh, and I didn't know that. Yeah, he played all the. Yeah, you could probably Google look up some as far as it, there might be some snippets of the show. It was a cool show. He had he was playing R and B and soul music back mm-hmm. then. Right. So um, we had the band for a year. It's called Freddie and the Stone Souls, and. Um, Sly had, uh, after making a few attempts of, uh, of putting something together that wasn't working for him, he he kind of handpicked a, a, you know, a group of people, talked to his brothers, said, hey, bring someone from your group, man, that's, you know, uh, that would fit this. And so Freddie brought me. And, and actually, there was no rehearsals or practice until the day everybody met. And that was kind of a... a, a he it was unannounced. I showed up for a rehearsal for a rehearsal with Freddie in the group, <clears throat> and Sly and Freddie lived in, at their folks' house, same house. So when I got there, um, it, it was you know announced that we we're starting new things, and I like oh okay yeah this sounds good you know and everybody mm-hmm. showed up. Uh, Larry and um, you know Freddie and Sly were there of course already. Myself, Larry Graham, Cynthia Robinson showed up. And uh, Jerry Martini. And we talked that night. We didn't even play. We just talked about, um, what, what, you know, the idea, the concept of everything, you know, mm-hmm. which seemed pretty exciting and challenging at that time. This is December of 1966, you know, uh, there, you know, and to put male and female and black and white together in a group was just unheard of, you know? Yeah. Uh, this was, you know, but it, uh, this was like, for me, for for all of us, actually, this this is cool. Yeah, let's do this. You know, <laughs> like the challenge. So that's how that started. Um, and then you know we rehearsed the following week and started gigging. Mm-hmm. And um, I hope I didn't veer off your original question. No, no. Okay. Uh, I mean, this, I, I knew the, you know, I knew the origins about, I was kind of like a super group that you guys put together, basically, right? You took two bands, handpicked some people, put it together. Um, and we were talking about sort of the, the, the sound. And when you would mention that you, oh, you yeah. guys w- went in and didn't play, you just talked. Was it, were you having conversations? Like, what do we want this band to sound like? And, and. Well, okay. So, so just, you know, I mean, I think Sly already was kind of like, Looking at, yeah, you know, he had he had put a couple of groups together and it, it didn't work. It was it wasn't what he was looking for. So I I think he just kind of just broke it back down to just human nature. Say if I, you know, I mean if if I put if I mix this up, you know, th- this is going to be 
this is a group of humanity. It's going to mm -hmm. represent all, you know, it's going to represent mixed genres and genres and, you know, male, female, you know, I mean, so it's like just to do that, um, you're the, what's going to come out of the other end is going to be interesting. It's going to be different just, mm -hmm. just by following through, you know, yeah. the thought. So, and we talked about musically, we don't want to be, um, we want to do something different, just like it looked, just like it was by nature. This is different. And we wanted the music to be different. I'm going to do something new. We don't want to do the same thing. Don't want to do doo-wop. And, you know, the typical thing that was going on during that, at that period of time. Uh, and we wanted to bring to the table everything that represented us individually and collectively, you know. So mm -hmm. that's a lot. It's a, that's a, it's a big mouthful. Yeah. It's a lot. So, uh, and we knew that, of course, to start gigging, we had to do some music that uh, we couldn't just, you know, start with or just our own music. Although that's what, what the end goal was, mm -hmm. but we had to do like cover tunes. So we learned the cover tunes. But if we were going to take each cover tune, and we were going to make it our own, just put our thing into it, our personality, make it different, you know, make it danceable, make it groove, but just put our thing to it. Right. So that's how it started out. With that, that was the you know the concept and the intent. <clears throat> And then it just, you know, it morphed, of course, and developed and mm -hmm. from that. But but c coming from that from that place, I, th I think that says it all as far as when you heard of the group and you started hearing what we were doing and it, it, it got your attention. It was it was that initial fundamental thought uh, and following through with that, that that kind of, you know, wow, what what is this? I can't define this, you know, and right. You know, there was a lot of challenge in the beginning to do it too. It was, hey, people are telling. I mean, we didn't have a lot of support. It was like, yeah, then it could work. You know, you got to you got to do this or you got to do that. You know, just the status quo. You and didn't that, have you didn't have a lot of support because of the style of music or or because of of how you guys were were sort of desegregated and and playing all of this different kind of music with a, a variety of people in the band. All the above. All the above. Yeah. All the above. You know. And uh, but w when we played, when we heard rehearsed, and we were together, we felt really comfortable and very cool about well, this is this is exciting, you know. Right. I right. mean, we were getting off, you know. Mm -hmm. So it's like, um, you know, we just projected that, and and uh, you know, of course, there were challenges, a lot of challenges along the way, but um, you know, we took them on and digested it in our own way and did our own thing with it and. You know, I think that spoke a lot for um, when it started getting attention and start connecting. Um, it spoke a lot for 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 what it was. I mean, mm -hmm. and, you know, uh, our, our first record, a whole new thing. The first single was Underdog. You know, it got some local play, but it it didn't connect with people. I mean, musicians had it. Right. Yeah, but but as far as the general public went over their heads, as far as the record company, we signed with CBS, but they didn't know how to market it. We, I, it and not to their, I mean, I could understand why they didn't know how to market it. They didn't know what to do with it yet, you know? Right, right. And it wasn't until David Kaplick, who was our manager, and he, he had been the 
uh, vice president of Epic Records, which is CBS label. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> he comes, you know, after we released the first record, he, he came to slide and he says, you gotta, you gotta write something that, um, that I, you know, I dig what you're doing. I did, don't get me wrong, Sly. I dig, I dig, dig what you're doing. I mean, this is really when when I sit when I sit and listen to you guys when when I experience the group, it's it's very exciting. It's just like beyond description. But um, but you got to connect first. You got to grab everybody's attention and then bring them to where you want to go musically, which made sense to him. Made sense to me. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, so. It was what he was doing. He was pulling his shirt tail to get him to just put some something, for lack of a better term, commercial or something that would speak to everybody, have a good time, have fun, get their attention, and then and then bring him to this new place. Yeah, you know, that we wanted to, we wanted to describe and we wanted to feel and we wanted to project. So that was dance to the music. Mm. You know, it's a smash. Yeah, and and it contained all the attributes of the group. Everybody had a little, you know, you know, half a minute solo. And he had some bottom, put some drums, and put my guitar in there. I'm gonna add some organ, the voices, everything that the, the horns, you know, everything that the group was. He focused on for a moment mm-hmm. in a danceable tune format, something that's easy to relate to let's all dance some music let's have a good time let's celebrate right and that's what it was and it worked hmm. were were there conversations with you guys and maybe with the record labels and things like that about about problems that you were going to have touring in different in different areas i mean obviously different areas of the country like you know painting painting the picture like it's 1963 64 65 uh you know racism and segregation are rampant in the united states you guys are an interracial band uh you know touring north and south so i'm sure that you know the north was obviously different than the south um were there some internal chatter of of well put it this way they were very much aware of our challenges, but they were our challenges, and we were ready. And we we were very much aware of them too, mm. and we were ready to take them on. We had each other's backs. It was you know, we, we felt you know. Although there were you know there were times like we got Harry traveling to the south, but in different places where they we, they looked at us like you know. I mean, we we just landed on a spaceship. Like right. we, we, you did know. you guys have to stay in you guys uh, <laughs> different hotels and stuff? Uh, no, 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 no. no. We go for that. No, and this was just at the time where all that was changing. You no, know, Johnson right. was, uh, I think, uh, in already, and he, you know, he had signed the bill. You know, desegregation. I mean, you know, things were just changing, and so we were like the perfect storm. I mean, we came around at the right time mm-hmm. and had the right structure, and just contained all that it needed to to challenge all that, but but be able to deal with the challenges, mm-hmm. you know, with yeah. the issues, you know? And so, and then, and then we had the power of music and that was the centerpiece. That yeah. is just what brought it. That that's what gave us, I think the strength to uh, take on some of these challenges and, and get through it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so you travel and you, and you go through what you go through, and then at the, that in the at, at end of the day, play the music and it brought everything together, and there were no more questions. Right. There were no more issues. There were no nothing. 
Mm-hmm. You know? I love so it. So that's what, that's, what, that's what fed us through the time. Mm-hmm. You, know? you know, I, and maybe just because I'm, I'm such a, you know, such a fan of Sly and the Family Stone that maybe, maybe my eyes are always focused on that. But I always, I always see, and I wasn't around in, you know, in the 60s and 70s, but yeah. I've always looked at the band as sort of like one of the, one of the first crossover bands that are, that were breaking new ground and bringing people together, like you said, with the power of music and mm-hmm. saying, look, you know, we're, this isn't about, this isn't about, you know, gender or race or anything. This is just about, about music and, and love and unity and, and all of that. Not all of the, you know, all of those, uh, those cliches that everyone likes to talk about, but I really feel like you guys embody that. And again, I couldn't, I wasn't around at the time, but, but mm-hmm. listening to the music and watching the videos and things like that, I just get this sense of like, this was this, it was this great unification of, of people that were coming together with this common theme of just, we just, we just want to have fun and love this music. Yeah. And, and we never gave it a second thought. And mm-hmm. that's what it was. Although, like I said, you know, there were the challenges, but, but we had what it took to take on those challenges and, and, uh, and, and, and then at the end of the day, you know, speak loudly as to what you can do, what you should do, what you can do. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and the music brought us all together, everybody. And, they, and you kind of got it. You didn't have to teach anything or explain anything. You just, if you, if you showed up, you know, for the experience, you got it. <laughs> right. You know. Did you and, guys start to feel a sense of... A sense of like civic duty because you had this platform. No, not no. really. I mean that uh, that was tried. That there was attempts to put that upon us, but it just didn't. You know, it's just like we don't we don't need to go there. I mean, right. we never felt like we did had to go there or was ever you know threatened. I mean, it was even uh, yeah. We just it, it it. I I know what you're saying, and uh, but it was never. Those kinds of things were never an issue for us. It was never, those weren't the big challenges at all. Right. Yeah. Right. No, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I was, the other day I was listening to, uh, I, I don't even remember what song I was listening to, but I was just thinking about tone and, and sound of your drums and, and the sonic choices that you made. Uh, the, you know, the, the, the gear that you were using and the tunings and all of those things were, were, and I mean this, and I, I don't want you to take this in the wrong way, but were those conscious decisions or were a lot of it like, you know, hey, everyone just played Zildjian's and that's what I played? And, no. And, no it's no. To- totally, totally valid question. And no, I was very – I was extremely specific on – on it, it wasn't an accident. I mean, what right. you heard, what I was doing – and what I had selected was what I was feeling, what I was hearing, what I wanted. You know, I wasn't mm-hmm. happy till I got this. You know, this. When, even even when I played, I would tune. I was always very tuning conscious. So mm-hmm. before recording, uh, my drums were sounded like I wanted the sound. It wasn't just I played in little, and that's cool. Whatever it was, it was cool. Mm-hmm. No, it, I, if I didn't like it, I'd spend hours on it. Yeah. You know? So. When I went in the studio, the same thing. And being self-taught, don't forget, this I think plays a big part of it because I had nothing. I, I didn't have any, 
instruction to go by. This is all from the seat of my pants. Right. And, and um, so in the same way, when we went in the studio, <laughs> I remember we went to the studio, you know, there was all this protocol that, well, put the wallet on the drums and some tape and some paper towels and right. stuff the bass drum with pillows. No, 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 no. That's not what I'm hearing, man. <laughs> and so there, I remember um, when we first recorded in New York, uh, you know, so this is CBS. So they have, you know, very seasoned engineers. Sure. You know, and the guys are making hit records up to hit records. Ahead. So they're like, this is the formula. Well, Here's what you I, do. All I can say, yeah, you know, all I can say right now is I must have been, I must have felt pretty strongly about what I felt. And whatever it was that they just, you know, uh, how do I say this? Where, you know, and, and, and you know, well, you're, you're supposed to fit this certain mold, a certain structure when you record or certain things you've got to do and that and that. I just, you know, part of our sound is because I didn't know any better. And it, whether I did or not, this is what I wanted. And now the challenge is on you. Okay, engineer, how do we do this? You know, it's kind of like, and, and, and they were into it and they would allow that to happen. And I say the word allow, because again, this is CBS and these, these are the guys that are making hit records, you know, then these guys are pros and they right. knew what they were doing and, you know, they knew what worked also. So for us to come in must've been, I mean, that statement that I say, uh, or, or that image and that vibe that we represented must have been very powerful because, um, w you know, when we go into record, they would allow us to break these rules. Uh, you know, they just kind of went with it because, well, this is some, you know, they heard the group and they, they knew, you know, they got the vibe too. And so, uh, they took on the challenges, the challenges said, well, well this is different. I think we've got to let this, these rules go here. Mm -hmm. experiment with these guys and you know so it was there was a lot of that going on and you know that standing up for what we wanted to achieve and what, what the end result was was um it's all it's all part of the pro it's all part of it you know it's all right. part of the process you know right so what is so what is that what is that sound is it is it Dil like old Zildjianese, the um, yeah, like okay. superphonic so or you know just straightforward. I had a Ludwig. Uh, I had was playing Ludwig's, um, and uh, I was playing Zildjian Sibyls. That was you know the the <laughs> the choices back then weren't as vast, uh, or was the equipment as sophisticated as today. I mean, geez. I had a conversation uh, yesterday that I was like, I don't even, I I, I can't even pick symbols because there's 18,000 symbols out there, <laughs> you know? Exactly. Yeah. Now I, I use, uh, I use Paiste now and uh, they're very consistent, and, you know, high quality and they got all the different characters. Out. But Zildjian was, Zildjian was the, um, they were into it back then. I mean, they still are they're still yeah. great symbol. And, um, but they were, they were, the, they were, you know, they were the front of the pack at that time. Mm -hmm. And uh, so Ludwig drums, and um, which were very fine drums at that time. Um, and I used the Remo had just. I remember, geez, when I first started playing, it was just it was just at the end of the uh, calf heads, you know. Mm -hmm. 
And I remember some drummer friends of mine, you know, they always had to turn the heads if it was raining or fog, foggy in San Francisco. So a lot of humidity in the air. The, the, you know, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they would go soft and, you know, dull. And uh, and it was, this was right at the time, I think 67, maybe when when Remo Belly came out with the, you know, the uh, plastic head. Mm-hmm. The, and, and I'm sure the people are like, what is this? Get this out of here. You know? Yeah, well, no, you know, I'd, so I'd, I'd go, oh, this is cool. You'd get this, you know, and they, and they were nice. They were bright and they were, and they stayed tuned. So I gravitated, you know, right. I was, I was right there with them. I, mm-hmm. This, this is good. I, I like this. And they, you know, I was still digging, you know, calf heads and with, you know, and what, what that was about. But, um, you know, things were changing and the music was getting electronic and the music was getting yeah, uh, more powerful. Drums came from just a supportive and timekeeping instrument to something that was, uh, whether it be live or, or, or even in the records, was, and, and Slide was one of the first ones to mix the drums out in front, the song. Mm-hmm. Stick right in your face and everything was built around that beat and around that sound, you know? Right. And, um, so I mean, and then that's, that's where I was at. I mean, I, I was digging that. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, he was very, um, very open to everyone's ideas. I mean, he wanted to incorporate what everybody was thinking and feeling and, you know, and their interpretation of, any you know any given idea what have you or come up with your own ideas and so i was you know i mean i couldn't have been at a better place at a better time yeah yeah Um, when you're talking about the drums being out front and i i think that one of the one of the misconceptions about about funk specifically uh and like some of the soul stuff that I think that people feel like there has to be all of this intricate stuff going on with with whatever they're playing. Uh, but then if you go back and listen to the right records, like if you listen to the, all the stuff that you know that you played well on all these records, you're just like you're just driving the bus, right? And it's like it's grew, it feel everything feels so good, and it's and it's airy, and there's all of this space and everything that you're playing, and it's just like it sits perfectly with the tune. Uh, what is your what is your advice for for people who are are trying to find that sort of that sort of touch and finesse and vibe in inside of the tunes that they're playing? Well, I'll speak on what you said at first. Uh, you mentioned people think of funk and all this intricate and you know, a lot of a lot intricate complex. No, it's actually quite the opposite. And as a matter of fact. It may you may need to think about it as the spaces or or the space between the notes is more important than the note you play. Mm-hmm. It can't be. As a matter of fact, that space you leave where and where you put the spaces uh is the composition. I mean, that's what makes the dynamics and that's what sets up that note that you play. You have to, you're setting it up. So it's not, you're, instead of sitting there thinking, well, what am I going to play? Well, yeah, I got to play, well, what, what am I going to put here? And, you know, and, and do it's, 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 you, you approach it the opposite. It's like um, hearing the silence uh, is what makes, like if there's silence before something you speak, um, it just makes it that much more, you know, you got the focus is on you. Mm hmm. 
burn it. And if you put that in the right place, it's a very powerful thing. Yeah. I mean, rhythm is a funda- it's, it's fundamental in humanity. I think, you know, I, I've heard uh, discussions on, um, on rhythm and where that plays into humanity historically. I think rhythm is one of the first languages yeah. of humanity. Before there were spoken languages, and you think about going back to where there was tribes and villages, um, the, the form of communication um, was that rhythm that they were pounding out on a log or something, you know, to tell you whether it was time for celebration or if there was they were angry or the, mm-hmm. or or come on over and join us. These are rhythms that spoke these feelings and these emotions and communicated these thoughts and, you know, and yeah. what was going on at a given time. Why do yeah. you think we as drummers, t- and not everyone, so I don't want to, I don't want to speak uh, for everyone, but the, the tendency is to want to play a lot of notes or want to fill in all of those spaces and, and uh-huh. not let it breathe. You know, it's it's kind of it could be a natural thing because it's exciting. You know, when when someone gets first turned when they first see the drum set that make them want to play, it's like whoa, you know. And it, you know, it's, it's the same with the guitar players, right? Mm-hmm. You know, a million notes where you could have a guy, you know, that that he plays one note and lets it ring. You know, this guy's like like Carlos Santana, right. like that. It's not about a lot, not that he can't play a lot of notes, and he does sometimes, but within a couple of seconds of hearing his tone and his placement, uh, you know, it's him. Yeah. And so, you know, it could be said for, you know, with keyboard players, any melodic instruments, rhythmic instruments. And that's why I think uh, there there could be uh, more discussion and more emphasis on the space between the notes, what you don't play and where you don't play it and what you play and where you play it. Do you think that's something that can be developed in the practice room by yourself? Or do you think that has to be something that's, that's practiced with other people? That's an interesting question. Um, you can, to be conscious of it, uh, uh, it, 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 it's probably more, an issue of where it could be put into practice would be more with other people it becomes very effective when you're, when you're playing together in an ensemble as opposed to practice. I don't know. I, I, I wouldn't know how to describe to just to practice that concept, you know, because you know, you're by yourself. Right. Um, you know, <laughs> and I've never thought of it like that. I mean, I've never, if you're aware of it, you know, I think it comes into play more when you're playing with people as yeah. opposed to practice. Because practicing is more just, you know, the stretching, building your, you know, your muscle up, your, your, you know, your ability to move smoothly and play notes evenly. That's more practice. Learn rudiments, you know. Mm-hmm. It's like the gym for an athlete, right? It doesn't make you a better baseball player, but it just... Yeah, works you, on your stuff. You you got to be able. There's a physical aspect to it, and even an emotional and spiritual aspect to it. To being comfortable 
and executing uh, movements and thought and, you know, so that's more practice then. But to, to be conscious of the importance of the spaces between the notes or as, a, is, is a, or as important as the notes that you're playing, I think it's a very extremely important thing. It's interesting. There's, there seems to be, coincidentally, because we're all isolated right now, but it seems like there's a lot more isolated playing. And, and I agree with you that I, you know, you have to go out and play with people. Yeah, you have to go in the woodshed mm -hmm. and you have to, and you have to work on your muscles and work on your mobility and, and, you know, be able to move around the kit. Mm -hmm. But if, but I, to me anyway, the real magic happens when you're on stage or when you're, pra when you're playing with other people and that's where you really get to develop your sound and, and really develop your musicality Absolutely. and your skills and all those sorts of things. Yeah. I think we're missing a lot of that now. That's just my take. Yeah. Um, you mean in performance, you mean in people I, performing? Yeah. I, I mean, for, for drummers that I, a lot of drummers that I see that are spending 90% of their time in the practice room by themselves. Right. Playing yeah. drums. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what to say to that. There's just, there's, there's so many, I mean, in comparison to back when I started, I mean, there's many just young, there's a lot of good drummers and male, female, young, older, everything in between, just amazing capabilities and techniques and, and speed and uh you know it but it all it all comes down to what you do with it all and a um and a, and you know in the configuration of you know multiple people or when you're playing together mm -hmm. uh, because if you just get up there and you're just all over the place on on a, on when playing a song i mean and you know um <laughs> that, that that won't work although then you could take, for instance, uh, like fusion, jazz fusion, where you were speed and odd times and, you know, a lot of playing. Like I went out and I played with um, when I toured with the Weather Report. OK, mm -hmm. which most people, which a lot of people don't know that that you did that, which is amazing. I wanted to talk about that transition, but go ahead. Sorry. Well, no, sorry. That's the antithesis of the grooves of for instance, Lion of Family Stone was playing, you know, but um, it's, 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 it's all this improvised expression with no boundaries, no rules. It's just like you got to, you put the right chemistry of people together. And uh, I remember Joe used to, you know, there would just be, <laughs> when we first played, uh, it was in New York, and I had gone back a couple of days before, and we only had like a couple of rehearsals, and it really wasn't. I mean, it, 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 the approach for me was the antithesis of 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 what I was doing with R and B, you know, and, and and rock, and you know, it was like you you um, you got to be really fluid, and you got to be really comfortable and really secure with the people you're with. And and understanding their capabilities too, and you just you just let it go. You just open up, and you're you you know you you got a you got an intro, you got a middle, and you got a way to get out. Everything that happened in between was of the moment, mm -hmm. 
And and that was all you're you're bouncing off of each other. You're listening to each other. You're you're, you're in musical conversation. You know, question answer statement. You know, and it's just it's everything. You know, mm-hmm. was it a challenge to make that that shift mentally? Um. It, well, yeah, I, I would have to say it was a challenge, but it was a welcome one. I was like ready for, I was really just, you know, when, when I had left Sly, I, I took a year off and I didn't play, I didn't tour, I didn't do anything. I just rode, I bought a motorcycle and just <laughs> rode around and chilled, right? Nice. And, uh, and you know, things were coming my way and I wasn't, you know, it was like, you know, after, um, uh, I just wasn't interested. And when that came around, um, and I wasn't even really that familiar with, uh, with I had heard about the group, but I, I wasn't that familiar with the music. And, um, and a guy was living, this bass player was living with me at the time, Dougie Rauch, and he was friends with Miroslav Vietos. Um, Dougie had played with Santana for quite a while and, and was voices of East Harlem and, you know, different people. Um, anyway, he was friends with Miroslav and he says, hey, I want to bring him down to jam with us. And oh, what's he play? He goes, he plays bass, upright bass. Well, okay. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, and so, and I didn't know who he was yeah, at the time. So we kind of hit it off. We were jamming and then he had, had announced a couple weeks into hanging out that, you know, they were going, the weather report was going on tour and Joe needed a drummer. Would I'd like to do it? And I, I, uh, Gladly accepted, and I really didn't know what I was, you know, getting into. Yeah, uh, but I was—I mean, when I realized what this was all about, and it was like wonderful. It was just amazing. Yeah, um, you know, and I—I I just—I I feel blessed to have opportunities like that, and and uh, to be able to, you know, to take the challenge and and just you know own it. And um, so that was just a very cool thing. I, I, you know, I've been blessed in that way to, to be able to. It, it's kind of like it kind of reflects where I grew up. San Francisco was always a different place, and always had a lot. It had it represented everybody. Like I said, it's the international in, intersection. Yeah, you know, like New York, but even in a, in a more unique way. Mm-hmm. New York is, you know, that on steroids, but San Francisco still had. Uh, it was a place where everybody from all around the world came through, and when they then those peoples and cultures brought their music with them. So you heard it on the radio, you heard it live, and 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 also you felt it. I mean, spiritually, you're amongst people from all over the world, as opposed to if you grew up in, you know, uh, uh, somewhere you know in the Midwest and just you know in a, in a cornfield or something. Yeah. <laughs> It's one thing to talk about how great dream symbols are, but it's another thing to actually hear them for yourselves. And the good thing about dream is not only do they sound great, but they're also priced well below the competitor's prices, so that way you can actually afford to buy these symbols. And if you don't think you can get a great sounding symbol at a low price, check out dreamsymbols.com. But first, I want you to take a listen to what these things sound like. To learn more about Dream Symbols, be sure to check them out at dreamsymbols.com.
If you're looking for a top-of-the-line snare, then look no farther than the Mapex Black Panther Design Lab series. These are designed to combine sound concepts to create unique and personal instruments for the demanding player. They come in three unique variations, and they all have their own unique sound quality to them. You have the Heartbreaker, which is dark and rustic and throaty. You have the Cherry Bomb, which is vintage, controlled, and precise. And then you have the Equinox, which will give you that classic, bright, articulate sound. To learn more about the Mapex Black Panther Design Lab series, go to mapexdrums.com. It's yeah, always it. amazing to me how the epicenter of music moves around the country. You know, like if you look at San Francisco with with you guys, Grateful Dead, Santana, Dave, you yep. know, uh, Tower of Power. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the list goes the list goes on and on, and then you know, and then well, it moves you just, to. You just- Described a lot of stuff, a lot of kinds of music, a lot of different music there. Yeah. You know, that's all. That's, you know, you usually don't get in any particular uh, area geographically uh, all that content out of one place. That's a valid point, which I did not even think about. You think about grunge music, you know, it was all the same style of music that came out of Seattle, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't even think about that with San Francisco. It's like all the music was different. And at the time that this exploded and this was going on, mid-60s, uh, you know, New York and L.A. were the outpost, were the, you know, the, the, these were the places where the music was coming from, where the records were being made. And, you know, um, so San Francisco, and with, I always had felt before the explosion that one day, that, I mean, because it was just so interesting, so much stuff going on and, and stuff would be mixed together that would never ordinarily happen, you know, mm-hmm. uh, musically. And I guess uh, all the re- the records were getting recorded in New York and LA. That's just because that's where the record labels were, right? Well, yeah. And so, well, okay. So, so w- w- what's that going to attract? That's going to attract the musicians and the creators are going to go to those places because that's where it's being recorded. That's where it's coming from. That's where the business is being done. Mm-hmm. So it made sense. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. It just did. It, it just was what it was. Yeah. As the world turned and became more complex and things start breaking molds, uh, there comes San Francisco. And then, you know, you think about it, even after that, uh, there was, you know, kind of like uh, different parts of the country would have its turn at being the spot that was putting out the new thing that everyone was listening to. Right. You know, mm-hmm. Seattle, Midwest, the South. Look at the transition the South went through with country music and then end up being, geez, I mean, back in, what was it, the 80s and 90s when a lot of the musicians from, who were living in L.A., when things started drying up there, they all moved down south because it was going on. And so look at that influence on country music. You take a country record in mid-1950, and then you take a country record, you know, now uh, from from around 2005 to up to this period, um, it's, it's a pop rock and roll record, you know. Yeah. With yep. great writing, you know the lyrics are still, you know the the the, the, the writers down south. There was always great writers and you know storytelling, you know, mm-hmm. and you put that together with these this big sound pop production, and um, 
that's what you got today. Yeah. I remember someone saying rock and roll is dead and, and someone else said, no, it's not dead. It's just, it's called country. It moved to Nashville. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, which Nashville, speaking of Nashville, what a scene down there. Yeah, See, it's insane. That reminds me of the late 60s, early 70s in San Francisco, which is this live music scene, Broadway Street, all the clubs and all the live music going on. It still lives there big time. Yeah. Did you, yeah. in San Francisco, did you have the feeling that there was something special going on there? or Because I think that as humans, we tend to not realize how good we have it until it's not happening. Uh, did you realize that there was some real magic happening in San Francisco at the time? Absolutely, you couldn't help but because yeah. it was big, it was loud, it was you know, it was, it was, um, yeah. It, it, you, you did, you felt it, you knew it, you were aware of it. But you know, uh, with that being said, it, all the different genres, like you know, uh, you know, we did Sly and Tower, and, but then there was Santana with Latin fused with rock and. And the Grateful Dead were, you know, were were improvising and jamming, you know, Quicksilver, all this different stuff. Janice came with some blues rock, you know, and mm -hmm. everybody had their own thing and wasn't threatened by the other thing that was going on. It was all it was all embraced. Like, you know, right. this is cool, man. We got our we got our own thing happening. It's can't define it. You know, Man. name this. Uh-uh. What a time to be alive. So yeah. how, how, I mean, I know this could be a whole, this could be a whole conversation and interview in and of itself, but, but Woodstock, what, I mean, wow. did, did any, I mean, did you have any idea what it was going to be? No, absolutely. You know? what, I don't think yeah. anyone did, right? And I mean, they no, all no, lost no, money. And <laughs> a, a, a lot of groups had turned, turned it down to be quite frankly, uh, um, it, you know, at that time, there there were a lot of um, outdoor festivals, you know, sizable mm -hmm. festivals, nothing to that like that. But I mean, you know, and and the production left a lot to be desired. So, as far as a group goes, and or an artist that's going to play these things, you know, they were like the the production was bad. You know, you burn up in the sun or get rained on and get electrocuted from the mic. And right. you know, it was a mess. Money, <laughs> dusty. They were fun, you know? Right. Uh, you know, to have to go perform in and then, then, you know, meet all the needs that to be comfortable and do a good performance. Right. Um, so, you know, a lot of people, oh, another, another, another festival. Nah. Okay. We got, we nah it too. You know, we, we got turned, talked into it at the end of the day. And, um, but okay, it's, again, it's just another festival until a couple days before when you start hearing on the news about all these crowds of people going to this music festival in upstate New York. At first, like it didn't even dawn on you that this was one and the same. And then, you know, this, 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 uh, morphed very quickly into this, a challenge, disaster, if you want to call it that. I mean, there were, you know, the, 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 the townspeople in this little town there were freaking out because all these hippies, all these people coming in and the, the police didn't know what to do. No one knew what to do. And they, they had to move the concert from one place to another. And, you know, at the end of the day, um, part of what made, you know, the music is the catalyst of, 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 but all the people coming together, and it really was about the people. 
people made Woodstock what it was mm-hmm. more so yeah. than the music. I mean, you know, the performances, there were performances, you know, some good, some okay. And, um, it, but it was really the, the magic of everybody coming together. Like you were talking a moment ago on, you know, uh, human beings being challenged, whether it be, you know, a tornado in a specific community or an earthquake or, God forbid what we're going through now on a worldwide level. Mm-hmm. You know, this is, this is an, op- I, and I called it, we were speaking earlier, and I don't know if it was before you started, uh, if we're on mic or not, but this is the equalizer. This yeah. is the group equalizer that's going on now. And it's, it doesn't matter who, where you are, who you are, uh, a leader, a follower, you know, rich, poor, on the street, in the mansion, uh, running stuff. You, this is the equalizer. Yeah. And we all got to come together. Like what happened there. Everybody came together. You know, large uh, gatherings of people were always kind of a challenge because it was always like trouble, fights, and all this. So yeah. uh, that was one of the challenges that, that the fear that existed for these little little townspeople of upstate New York that never, you know, wasn't even living. I mean, they were living in their own little bubble, right? In their own little world. Yeah. Nothing wrong with it. But here comes like the rest of the world coming in. Like, wow, what do we do with this? You know, it's uh, it a lot of fear, a lot of, mis- un, you know, misunderstanding. And at the end of the day, everybody realized, because it could have been a disaster, but yeah. everybody realized, um, well, you know, we all want the same thing. We all, you know, we, we I, I got to help you. You got to help me. I got to feed you. You got to feed me. It ain't about making money now. It ain't about anything else, but just coming together. Um, the centerpiece and the powerful thing was the music. You know, that I got to say, if, if I, I, I don't, I don't know how we could have replaced that with something else. Yeah. It wasn't about a politician speaking. <laughs> You know, it wasn't about, you know, some guy running some companies back, you know, the music, thank God that that was there. Okay. And it worked. And and that's part of the magic is what made this thing just kind of live on into history. And, you know, uh, people always say, Woodstock, wow, you were there. It's like, it's just like, it's got this magic thing that, you know, I mean, even though people that weren't there, I mean, they experienced the, 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 spirit of what that represented and what that meant lives on beyond beyond the event Mm -hmm. you know yeah and i always think i think of you know particular things for me that always stick out about that like you know soul sacrifice with santana and Mm -hmm. and you know hendrix sort of blowing everyone's doors off and and (laughs) you know getting being put on the map and and all of that uh what was what was one of your favorite moments from it uh, in, in the whole event or, sure. or, uh, yeah, or a set or a, 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 you know, a show that you caught. Well, you know, we came in, we went on like, uh, 3am on Saturday evening or it was actually Sunday morning. And so I had got there that afternoon. I seen, I seen a little bit of Janice and seen the who I didn't get to see Santana. Uh, I think. I don't remember if I seen Joe Cocker or it's just, I mean, so long ago that sure. it's, I'm thinking Joe Cocker now because I seen the movie, you know, 
dozen times or whatever. Um, and then we left, you know, that morning, like early morning sometime. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, I did get out and walk around a little bit too, just to, because it was just such a powerful thing. You wanted to kind of like just feel it and experience it, you know, beyond just being backstage or right. whatever. I would imagine there was a sense of urgency to get out of Dodge as well, right? Mm, no, no, <laughs> no, no, not really. Um, Maybe if I would have been there from the looks of what Sunday afternoon looked like, you know, the mess that was, you know, just, you know, it was all muddy and all the garbage and all that. Maybe you would have had that sense then, yeah. but, but never, never like, uh, as far as threatening, uh, no, not like that. Yeah. It, it wasn't. Yeah. And, and that's the whole thing. I mean, there's no in between. It had to be one way or the other, you know? Yeah. It felt comfortable. You didn't feel threatened. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's a lot of challenges, you know, it, it could have been ugly, but it wasn't. Yeah. Music is powerful. Music is yeah. powerful. And, uh, geez, if anything, um, it's, it's a good point you brought up there. I mean, this is something that we, uh, <laughs> it would be a good thing to discuss on a big level at this moment. Yeah. You know? Yep. Yeah. Um, you had mentioned we were talking about recording and, and where things were getting recorded and sessions and things like that. There's two particular uh, things that I want to ask you about, about sessions. One is the apocalypse, uh, apocalypse now session, which I mean, that's, that's a great uh, thing with to talk Mickey about right now yeah. with Mickey Hart. <laughs> yeah. um, what was, what was the vibe there and what was that like, you know, working with him and, and working on that, on that, uh, that album? Um, well, at that time, Mickey and I had, We'd been hanging out quite a bit, and I had did some recording on one of his projects, another one of his projects, and he was recording, doing some stuff for me. I was producing, and we had did. You know, I needed some uh, some stuff he provided for me, and he had this ranch up in Nevada. We used to hang out. It was great. It was a really funky, cool place, the studio in the barn, and um, so when uh, he was. Um, approached by francis francis for coppola to do some of the soundscape uh of when the, in the movie apocalypse now when they were going up the mekong delta when they were going up the river so um you know mickey took the project and he got a bunch of us together you know i i, I don't remember the, the whole guy erico michael hinton i think his name was a percussionist from new york myself him um and uh, we the grateful dead studio in san rafael we had just he, he set up the whole place he had all kinds of just thousands of percussion gear you know and stuff that he has made like the beast he called it this big that they the grateful dead used to do the uh you know during their set there'd be a, a drum solo breakdown and would be with the beast and he had all these th things that he devised and and he had a lot of uh uh friendships with interesting percussionists ayerto um and I think even Flora came, his wife came, was at these sessions too. Anyway, we said the big, with this big, uh, it was a huge studio. It was not a traditional studio. It was like a warehouse. And 
so the whole thing was we had stuff spread out all over the building and um and then set up monitors all over in doing the soundtrack and we just we were there for about a week mm-hmm. and we just would like wake up let it roll <laughs> create stuff to the visuals that were happening on the screen you know go back to sleep rest eat and this went on for about uh, four or five days and that's how that was created which was it's interesting because it's it's actually you know if you watch that movie that scene it's like you know we lived it we mm-hmm. kind of lived for a few days you know we went there you know yeah and um it, it was a very interesting project and i think it came out very representative of what it needed to be you yeah. know yeah it's great. I love Mickey Hart too. There's another guy I'd love to have on on the show, but he's you know super inspiring of a dead fan. And then you know reading uh, his the book that he wrote. Um, why can't I think? Drumming at the was yeah. drumming at the edge of magic. Yeah, yeah, it's a great book as well. Yeah. Well, you know, maybe uh, keep trying to get a hold of him. He's hard to get a hold, of, but uh, keep trying. Maybe. I will. I will. Great to have on the show. Um, so, what what can you tell me about about Betty Davis and working with Benny Davis? So, for people listening, Betty Davis is Miles Davis's wife, uh, and to me, arguably one of the most underrated performers ever. Uh, and I, but I know that you worked with her. You played on some of the records, but you also produced them too, right? Mm-hmm. I produced her first record, and she came to me. Um, she was uh, she was going out with Michael Carabella, who was the percussionist in Santana, the player at that time. And he, you know, had mentioned that she wanted to meet me, and she was living in New York, I think. And she was visiting San Francisco, and Mike and I were in the studio working on a project, so. He asked if she could come down. I said, yeah, bring her down, you know? Mm-hmm. And so we talked that day and she literally, we just kind of hit it off and she asked me to produce her record. She said she just got signed by um, just sunshine label, which was a small label that Michael Lang, the producer of Woodstock, uh, ran. So he's the one that signed her. Hmm. And I did the first record, produced it and played on it and, and, gathered that incredible cast that was just around San Francisco at that time. You know, everybody was, uh, you know, Larry Graham and Neil Sean and Merle Saunders and Pete Sears and Tower Power Horn Section and uh, uh, Kathy McDonald, the Pointer Sisters, before they had their, did their thing with David Rubinson. Yes, you can, can. That was, I think, their first big hit. Anyway, so it was an interesting, you know, and you you say underrated. It's really, it's interesting because, you know, she never had like, she was never like a household name or had a hit record, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But that record and her career has lived through the decades and there's, I, I can't tell you how many people I would get over over time would, you know, she disappeared like uh, mid mid to late 70s mm-hmm. into reclusion. And over the decades, there's always been, uh, she's always had a fan base that continued and a cult following. And her records were put out, uh, black market, you know, bootlegged. Mm-hmm. 
And then finally, a label out of uh, Seattle, Lightning Attic Records, licensed it from Michael Lang. And they came to me and wanted to go and, you know, maybe we could find the, 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 the original master recordings and we could remix it. And I was really excited about that. Well, comes to uh, be that um, the tapes in, in about a six-month quest to find the, the two-inch masters went to the studio where it was recorded and everything. And anyway, they weren't to be found. They were uh-huh. gone. Uh-huh. And uh, I had always made copies two track copies of the master recording, just the mix, you know, the mixes. Right. So I had those. So they actually took them and baked them. And that's what they uh, cut the CD with. Because, uh, you know, tape had been, I don't know if you remember the time period when, you know, people were recording on analog tape and it would degrade, it would come apart after time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you had to, you had a shot to save the recording by baking it at a certain temperature and, and really then, yeah you what does it does it like refuse the tape it, yeah. it refuses the, the molecules of the you know that are in in the, the magnetic tape and I never uh, knew that and, and you could recapture the recording otherwise you'd put it on the recorder and, and play it back and all the oxide would come off on the tape head and then it's gone forever done you know i or, never or, ever or knew that sound like you know you couldn't handle me talking like that you know it's right like so yeah that's when you said bake them i was like I, maybe that was just like a, a slang term for something no, else literally yeah literally, you put them in an oven bake it's a certain procedure certain temperature and uh and that's where they were you know now no one could relate to it because not everything is digital now but this yeah. was back in the uh, days of analog recording hey i mean i my, the last record i recorded i recorded on tape like Six years yeah. ago, so good for you. <laughs> Sounds so good. Oh yeah, it does. Yeah, so uh, interesting career, you know. And um, since uh, so, her records have been re-released, and there's been several, couple documentaries uh, done on her. One's been circling around the globe in film festivals, and um, and. Um, you know, we've caught up with the game. She, 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 it's, it's very, look, you know, check out the, uh, the doc. Uh, I will put a lot, a lot of this in perspective. Um, and, uh, but, but very interesting, never hit record, but just still an amazing awareness of her recordings and fan base worldwide. You know, what, what were your producing credits prior to that? That was, I believe, uh, well, it would have been the second thing I produced because the first was Michael and I were doing something. We were doing a project. Got you. Um, and, uh, did, I mean, so, did you feel comfortable going into the studio and producing a record? Yeah. Well, yeah, I was, yeah. She asked me, I said, sure, I'll do it. And, you mm-hmm. know, and I had, I mean, I, I was a, around a pretty good producer, you know? Yeah. Slide. So I had picked up a lot of chops from him. Um, so I was confident in doing it, and it turned out uh, it turned out very well. And then, you know, f- forward into the future, I ended up producing about I don't know a dozen, fifteen, maybe twenty albums. Did I did all uh, stuff from Lee Oscar? Uh, we had wrote and um, recorded three albums. I played on, produced Lee Oscar, the harmonica player from mm-hmm. War originally. Yep. And uh, one of the tunes um, 
speaking of which, one of the tunes was called San Francisco Bay. We did this in 1978, San Francisco Bay. And um, fast forward, you know, you got people sampling and you got people, you know, taking a tune and and then putting a bunch of other writers on it and, you know, coming up with a, a new thing. Long story short, San Francisco Bay turned into Timber by Pitbull and Keisha, mm -hmm. which ended up selling like, I don't know, 10, 11 million units worldwide. Uh, 2015, it came on. Wow. Um, you know, so it, it became a derivative of that tune, Timber. Mm -hmm. There's been no shortage of conversations around samples, the original drummers being being uh, <laughs> compensated for them, and I'm sure that you feel strongly about this because I'm sure that you know, I mean I know for a fact that your breaks have been sampled and used up, down, sideways, inside out, Clyde Stubblefield, obviously, yeah. uh, and, a, and a long list of of others. Where, where do you? I mean, I know where you sit on the on the uh, on the topic, but how do you suggest that that this problem gets fixed i mean i look at jabo and i'm like that guy should be a gazillionaire right yeah well uh, you know yeah that's it, it's not an easy fix i mean it's the same problem as you know artists uh, not getting their due over time you know over the mm -hmm. years but why aren't they clearing don't they i mean you know isn't it a clear and cut case like okay you sampled this you didn't clear it well here's the deal Usually you signed your rights away uh, in the recording contract on those tunes. You know, back in the day, you did not, not thinking or having any dream about that this stuff would be reused again on hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of hit records in the future. Mm -hmm. I didn't even know when that first started happening in the first couple of years, I would just, you know, I didn't even know. It was, I just thought, wow, that sounds like me. You know, yeah. Yeah. and I didn't realize it at first, not till you know, a few years down the road, <laughs> I found that it was me, you know, on, on all these, uh, like hip, hip hop and, uh, and rap records. And, uh, and then, you know, quite frankly, it's just rhythm and rhyme. I mean, they're just, it's, you know, poetry and a drum beat, mm -hmm. you know, just, they're rapping and his drums. That's how it started out. Yeah. I mean, there wasn't even any melodic structure to this. Just the drum, your your drum performance, and some guy rapping over it. You know, mm -hmm. I, but, I I talked to uh, David uh, Wasikinen from the Hooters, and and he was talking about rights. You know, you have the neighboring rights, and then you have performance rights, and even mm -hmm. if you were a work for hire, mm -hmm. you're still legally, uh, you're still. Uh, you know, you have some legal recourse where you can actually yeah. go back and get performance rights royalties. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I never get got paid for any of that stuff. 
Um, but it was, you know, not I, even the Pitbull stuff and all that. Oh no, 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 that's songwriting. Oh, uh, uh, okay, I got you. Songwriter Sorry. on San Francisco Bay that turned into Timber and. And yeah, that songwriting is a whole different thing. Got you. I th- sorry, I thought you were saying they just sampled the no, p- okay. performance. You know, so is what happened. What was happening is that uh, at first these guys were taking the um, taking the performances and using putting you know rapping on it and putting the records out. And finally, the record company caught up with them. And so is what ended up happening. Typically, it was a, a, a licensee fee that they would have to pay for that. But the right the label would keep it because they own the copyright. They own the masters. You know, yeah. and unfortunately, you know, you sold your uh, that right away. And I've never chased it down. I just kind of, um, I guess you could say, you know, it, it, sure, I would like to get paid for that, but I'm okay, you know, mm-hmm. in, in a lot of other different ways uh, as far as financially. Uh, I've been blessed in, you know, whether it been songwriting, like this Timber song came back. That's amazing. I mean, it's the gift that keeps on giving. Um, but the performances, it's, it's nice to know that what you did inspired a new generation of, um, artists, you know, to do something and continued on doing that. And, uh, sure. I would have liked to got paid. I'd like, I'll take it in the check right now, but you know, I'm not bitter by it. Uh, I've went on and been, you know, been inspired to go back out and perform again and and play. Mm-hmm. There was a time period where I had stopped, you know, and so what was the reason behind stop? Just didn't feel didn't feel uh, passionate about going out and playing. You know, just times changed and uh, what you you know the drum machines came out. Not that would have stopped me. I mean, I just. I just, I got it. I just raised a family, you know, I got five kids. Mm-hmm. So I just, that was, wasn't the main, it just wasn't, um, you know, I did what I did and you know, you can't, uh, and I, I did some things on a pretty good high level and <laughs> I'd I, say so. <laughs> and keep chasing those experiences. You could have different ones, you yeah. know? Yep. So I'm having different ones now, but you know, I, I wasn't going to kick and, and scream and cry because it wasn't happening for a time period. Um, it just, you know, do something else Yeah, and wait for things to come around again. If you weren't playing, what were you doing during the years that you weren't playing? Just kind of raising the family and, and kind of kicking back? Yeah. yeah. I still had my, had my drum set up. I'd play, you know, and it would be sometimes months would go by and, you know, wouldn't touch them. You know, but uh, I had stopped touring for the most part. Um, this would have been hmm, late 80s. I mean, I did, I still did some play, I did like gigs, local things, and you know, I do this and that, no, no major things. Um, and then you know, until it was time for that to come back around again, mm-hmm. you know? yep. So what about now? What uh, I know, I, I guess you were doing. Did you do some stuff with with uh, Dumpster Funk a little while back? Yeah, yeah, I'm doing. Well, geez, we it just got canceled too. We we're supposed to of do course. the Jazz and Heritage Festival, um, which got canceled. I was doing it with Jason Miles. We we're doing a, um, a Bernie Worrell tribute, and then I was going to do a thing with Dumpster Funk. You know, doing the Sly Song book, mm-hmm. and we will probably do that more often but also in the future 
um, <laughs> when live performances could, I mean, this is crazy. I mean, it is crazy. I would never thought I would be having this conversation, but, uh, it's, you know, it's beyond comprehension of what's going on right now. But, um, I, I, I you know, when we get through this, uh, it'll be even more important to celebrate mm -hmm. that music and those cooperations with different great people. We did one in December with, uh, I did, um, dumpster funk, uh, with featuring myself and David Garibaldi and the Tower Power Horn section doing the Sly book and the Tower book. Man, just off the hook. It was uh, man. Yeah, that's like that was that. That's a, that's my dream right there. But I, could, but I could just listen to that all day long. We and were I'd be supposed fine. to do it on New Year's Eve um, at the Fillmore in San Francisco, mm. and for some reason uh, the, they had decided not to do it there, so we changed the venue and did it at the. Um, Great American Music Hall, and I was fine with just the concept of wow, this is the right way to start the new year. You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if yeah. I could start here and take it up from there, I'm gonna be fine. And of course, we were all faced with our challenges, and here we are. But I, I'm confident that uh, we'll come through this, and maybe we'll be able to do that. You know, I I think that we will, and I also believe that. I believe that this is going to, in the long run, be better for live music because I think that people, you know, like how much would you pay right now to go see a concert, you know, <laughs> to be able to go see a concert? I and I think, I think people, and I'm, again, I'm, I'm optimistic. As I said earlier, I don't like to look at the negative. So I'm optimistic to think that people are going to rediscover the things that they loved and realize, oh man, I really miss going to concerts. And, and I, I think that, I, I don't know. I hope that, you know, bars are going to start having more live bands again and stuff like that. I'm optimistic. You know, yeah, I think you're right. I think, you know, be, when you're challenged, when we're, we are challenged with um, uh, the things that we love and sometimes, you know, you, you don't realize you, you stop appreciating or it just stops. You know, I mean, sometimes you got to go get away from something and when it comes back to you, you know, it's yours. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the same thing. Uh, with this word, humanity right now is 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 challenged with its very existence of in just are, are things that you live for every day. And um, when the coast clears, I think there's going to be a lot of love and a lot of appreciation for all these things that we've been enjoying for so long. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. it's interesting now because. You know, uh, two months ago, everyone, even when they were around everyone, they were distracted by social media and, and not paying attention and weren't, yeah. and weren't present. Yeah. And now that I think that we're telling everyone or, you know, the government is telling everyone, hey, you can't be around people, use social media, use digital, you know, digital communication. Everyone is saying, I don't want to do that. I want to see people. I want to hug people. I want to, you know, right. I want to be around people. And maybe it'll, you know, maybe this is in the long term. It's a blessing in disguise. It's a hard lesson. It's a hard way to learn the lesson, but I'm hoping yeah. that maybe we can come out on, on the other end in a lot better position. The equalizer is taking care of it. Yes, it is. <laughs> uh, yes, sir. Well, Greg, I I cannot explain to you enough uh, how influential influential you've been to me on my playing and and countless drummers out there in the world, countless musicians uh, across the board, and so I want to thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and chat with me for your generosity for the music that you've put out into the world and your constant. Uh, uh, 
outlook on on the way that you approach music and i i love it and i'm so grateful that you took your time to chat with me today nick my pleasure to be here i'm happy that i could do it and um and just uh let's get to the other side of this and have some fun again let's do it all right let's do it That was the legendary Greg Arico. I know you enjoyed that because uh, how can you not? I mean, he's Greg Arico. And I'm so stoked that I was able to get him on. And I'd love to hear your feedback about it. You can go to drummersresource.com forward slash session 559 if you want to check out all the show notes and also... If you want to make a comment on there or shoot me a message on Instagram or, or anywhere, any other socials that you're on, I'm on all of them. You can, I'm easy to find. So, uh, other than that, that's all I got for you. Please stay safe, listen to the experts, wear your mask, wear your gloves, wash your hands, and take care of yourselves. And we will get to the other side of this soon enough. Until then, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate you. I love you. And I'll be talking to you soon. Peace. Drummer's Resource is produced by Revoice Media. Executive producer Nick Ruffini, that's me. Edited by Justin Thomas. Video editing by Tomas Shannon. And graphic design by Catherine Wade. For more music and entertainment podcasts, be sure to check out revoicemedia.com.